singing in Duke this morning. I uh, don't mean to correct Edward, but I ought to correct Edward. There weren't quite this many in the early service. Uh, there was a good number. There was, I think, around 65 or so in the early service, which is a good number. Add that to the probably 130 or 40 in here and all the kids are in the back ministry. We're still at about our 250. The choir was the main lobby. No, I'm kidding. Uh, of, of this because the answer was, choir, you get to sit up here. And I realized before I even asked them, and we never asked them, was that's not a good idea if we can avoid it. So if you want to come to the early service, it's the same as this service. Uh, I don't see any holdovers. I'm always nervous when we've done double services, and we've done them many times in our 14-year history. I'm always nervous that they will say this on the holdovers. Your first one was better. Or, boy, you really cut loose in the second one. So I don't know which one it will be. Uh, but uh, we'll pray for good preaching and good uh, uh, understanding of the Word of God in both messages this morning. We're going to start a series, Our Superior Savior, in the book of Hebrews. It's a study of the books. How many have actually studied on your own through the book of Hebrews? Raise your hand real high if you've done that. All right, about 12 of us. Good, that's not a problem. How many have ever heard a preacher preach through the book of Hebrews? All right, the same 12 of you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, there's about another 12 to 20 of you. The book of Hebrews is tough. It's deep. And as the kid's song goes, and it's wide. And so as we look at these 13 chapters over the next coming weeks, we're going to be looking at things that teach us a lot about truth. And so what I want to do this morning, and I know your heads might explode. Usually I read the passage, I pray, and we preach. Well, I'm going to do a little explanation or exposition of the book. Then we'll read, then I'll pray, and then we'll get into the preaching this morning. Now, you can text your friends. Please don't. But if you really needed to, you can text your friends from the early hour. They got out on time. Right? They'll make it, I promise. Because this book is important, I want us to understand the context of it. So when we think about the book of Hebrews and all of the New Testament epistles, there are 22 New Testament epistles. An epistle just means a letter written from one to another. Those 22 epistles can be remembered this way if you think about it. Nine, four, and nine. So when you get, begin with the book of Romans and you begin moving through to the book of Revelation, there's 22 New Testament epistles, and they can be broken down 9, 4, and 9. The first 9 are letters that are addressed to the Christian churches. So you would have Romans, and then 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Then you would have the letters to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, churches in cities. Then you have four New Testament epistles, and they're written to people. 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So you've got 9 and 4. And then you have another nine. Well, Hebrews is the beginning of that second series of nine, and those nine epistles are written to Jewish Christians. Now, how many are Jewish in here this morning? Wow, none. Do you know how many we had in the first service? None. So some of you are thinking, good, this ought to be quick, so none of us need this letter. The answer is, of course not. It opens for us not just a letter to Jewish Christians, it opens for us a letter to religious people. People who are holding on to religious traditions. 
Romans, they introduced the first nine epistles, and Romans discussed the relationship of the gospel to Israel's moral law. In fact, Paul, in writing the book of Romans, makes a strong connection, connection to the prophetic ministry throughout the Old Testament. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and Paul writes, he has come, the moral law is complete in him. Hebrews, that we're going to be studying over the next few months, introduces the last nine epistles, and Hebrews discusses the relationship of the gospel message to the ritual law. Great appeal is made by the writer of Hebrews to the Old Testament priestly ministry. We are going to do some technical deep dives in the coming Sundays. I'm not going to tell you which ones because some of you will say, I feel a little sick, Pastor. I think I might need to not be here this morning. But we are going to do some technical deep dives into what Leviticus is about. Now I've really got your attention. You're super excited, I can tell you. I'm glad I came here today. I think by the time you're done, you will be if you're glad that you're here today. Each of the two groups of epistles end with prophecy, interestingly enough, which, which deal with the second coming of Christ. Second Thessalonians has the man of sin, the man of perdition. It has the idea of us as saints of the church being raptured, caught up together with him in the air. And the nine Jewish epistles end with the book of Revelation, which is the end of all things for everybody, the Jewish world and the Gentile world alike. It is with this New Testament context that we come then to Hebrews this morning. Not particularly as Jews, but as believers who want to see the superiority of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to all, the only other system that God established whereby men could even dare to approach him. That's why I think Hebrews is so essential for us. It explains the transition from the Old Testament to the New, what we have in Jesus Christ. The only other system that God ever set up in all of the world that a man, a high priest on the Day of Atonement, the high and holy day of the year, the only way one man for all of his people could come before God was established in the Mosaic Law. And it was only on that high and holy day. That's it. And so what Hebrews is going to do is say to us, listen, we have a freedom that they didn't have. Why? Because we have a superior system that is of grace as opposed to the law, whereby we can come before the throne of Almighty God. Hebrews is going to tell us just how, in every possible way, Jesus is superior to the old dead religion and rituals that this world would conjure up. Hebrews, then, is a book of maturity. It is a book of growing up our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We might say there is simple faith in Christ that saves us, but friend, it is studied faith of who Christ is, who he was, and who he always will be that sanctifies us. That's why Hebrews is so important. It's not just, well, thank God I'm saved. Yes, thank God you are saved. But do you thank God every day for the salvation that you've received? If you understand the book of Hebrews, you will. So as we understand it then this morning, it's an important book. In fact, this truth is at the core passage of all of the book of Hebrews. Here it is. It's the first half of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. It says this, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, so what does that first phrase mean, or that first statement mean? It simply means this. We, the writer says, are going to leave the basics, the principles of the doctrine of Christ. 
Those are the kindergarten. Those are the primary school. Those are your elementary years. These are the basic things that we're supposed to know about Christ. But the book of Hebrews takes us much deeper than that. It goes on and says, let us go on unto perfection. That word perfection means spiritual maturity or being grown up in your faith. John MacArthur, a preacher and a good writer, says this about Hebrews. He says, the epistle to the Hebrews is a study in contrast between the imperfect and incomplete provisions of the old covenant given under Moses and the infinitely better provisions of the new covenant offered by the perfect high priest, God's only son, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Included in the better provisions, and we're going to look at that word better in just a moment here in the introduction as well. Included in the better provisions found throughout Hebrews are these. We have a better hope in Christ. We have a better testament in his blood. We have a, promise, a better promise. We have a better sacrifice. We have better substance. We have a better country that we're longing for. And we have a better resurrection that is guaranteed to us. And I say with Mr. MacArthur, amen and amen. Lord Wiersbe, the great author, says this of Hebrews. The people to whom Hebrews was addressed were not growing spiritually, according to chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And were in a state of second childhood, childhood or regress in their growth. God had spoken in the word, but they were not faithful to obey him. They were neglecting God's instruction and drifting away from his blessing. He concludes, Hebrews seeks to encourage the reader to move ahead in their spiritual lives by showing them that in Christ they have the better blessing. He is the author and finisher of their faith, according to chapter 12 and verse 2. The book presents the Christian faith and life as superior to Judaism or any other form of religious system. <clears throat> the writer uses two words here in the book of Hebrews, and they are these, better and heavenly. If you look them up, you would probably find 15 references to the word better and about 20 references to heaven or the heavenly. What God is doing through this writer, and I'm going to clear up this writer in just a moment, he is making us take our eyes off of a doing system of the law to a system that is done for us by Jesus Christ. He is getting our eyes off of this temporal plane so that we might put them on the eternal plane and the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Now let me say this specifically. I believe, and I'm going to be careful here, that the Apostle Paul is the author of Hebrews. I realize I have good friends and theologians that are going to say, oh, but Kyle, you're wrong. Let me give to you just an introduction, and here's why I'm doing it. I told the earlier about this, and I did it once in the middle of preaching. I might say, Paul says here, if you do that, it's because me as a person, I studied the book of Hebrews with my own assumption and belief that Paul's the author. Let me give this caveat, and we're done with the introduction. Okay, here it is. I believe Paul's the author. He, above all, in the New Testament church leaders, knew the intricacies of the Mosaic Law. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says to the Corinthian believers. He, above all others, could write a letter showing the superiority of Christ with a better way, now seated in the heavenlies, to the old way, which was the acceptable way in the Mosaic Law. Here are my two reasons why I think Paul did not sign the letter, and that is the great thing. Paul signed every other letter, and the answer is, yep. Well, why didn't he sign this one? Don't know. Here's what my belief is on that. One, he was not the apostle to the circumcision. In the book of Galatians, Paul admits that Peter was the apostle to the circumcision, not him. 
He had already had ample amounts of disagreement with Peter, if you know the book of Galatians. We're studying it on Sunday night. You can come back to the last message in that series tonight. But we know that they had ample disagreement, and I think when Paul sat down to pen this, he in his own heart and mind is thinking, look, I want to write a treatise to my people. According to Romans chapter 10, he would give himself for the people of Israel if he could to save them. He wanted to write a treatise explaining why Christ is superior to everything else. That's reason number one. He's pastor of his opinion believers, Paul II. Not many Jewish converts trusted Paul. For far too many of them, their lives had been destroyed, especially in Jerusalem. And so while there was Christian forgiveness, there was also fleshly remembering sometimes. And Paul, instead of making him the center of the argument as to what is being written, he wanted Christ to be the center of the argument of what is being written. With all of that perfunctory things, the stuff out of the way, that means the introductory things, let's move into the message this morning. This morning, what I want to do in every one of the chapters, we're going to break down into some uh, derivative of the letter P. This morning, chapter 1, we're going to see the superiority of Christ in his person. He is superior in who he is in himself. Now, it doesn't matter about his purpose or his plan or his provisions and everything else, the priesthood that we're going to talk about in all the other chapters. None of those things matter if he isn't who he says he is. So let's read Hebrews chapter 1. See, I told you we'd get there. And look, it's only 11.15. I've got to 11.45. You stuck with me for another 30 minutes. The other, the early crowd, they're already eating Cracker Barrel. <laughs> they already got the big boy platter at Chris's. I mean, they are good to go. I'm glad you're here with me, though. Let's read these first four verses together. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Who, that is Jesus Christ, being the brightness of his, that is the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the power of his word, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Father, help us this morning. To see our Savior. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. Whom the writer of Hebrews. Explains him to be. Lord far too often in our modern world. We find. Jesus Christ. Degraded and dumbed down to our level. But Jesus is God. And as such, he is high and lifted up. Help us to see him in his person this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask a question then to start. Our thoughts on this sermon. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Oh, he's my Savior. Good answer. He's my Creator. Right answer. But who is he to you on a Tuesday morning at 1130 when all of the world is going to pot around you, who is Jesus to you then? Well, yeah, I get a little frustrated in those times. I don't really think that much about Jesus at that time. I think a little bit more about me and my problems. And why not? 
The writer of Hebrews is writing to us to say that Jesus is not just the center of the universe. He ought to be the center of our very lives day by day. What he's going to unfold in this first chapter is a revelation of who he is in his person, who Jesus is. And that's an important question to answer. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand our faith is placed in something divine, something better, something heavenly, something superior to anything of this world. So he begins where all faith must begin, and that is with the discovery of the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. He doesn't start with God's purpose. He does that in chapter 2, as we'll see next Sunday. You cannot have a purpose if you don't have a person. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we must begin with the one it's all about, and that's Jesus Christ. We find then, in our notes this morning, his person is first seen in his ministry. You are what you do. What you believe is how you behave, we often say around here. In other words, if you're 28 years old and you live in your parents' basements and you eat Cheetos and you play video games all day, you are lazy. That's the point of Hebrews 1. Now, that was just for you. (laughs) Now, there's mitigating circumstances and there's life realities that might be a part of why you might for a season. But if that's your perpetual lifestyle and that is what you do, then you are known as lazy. We find that Christ is first defined in his person by what he does, what his ministry is. The writer of Hebrews is saying to us, look, this is who Jesus is. This is what he accomplished. This is why you should pay attention to him. The writer of Hebrews puts his emphasis on two ministries of Christ that are essential. His first ministry was that of Revelation, letter A. From verse 1 to the beginning of verse number 3, or really to the middle of verse number 3, we find Jesus Christ is the Logos, the Word, the living Word of God. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that Logos that was in the beginning is Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ is the Jesus Christ who is spoken to us today from verse number 2. So we find that this revelation of Jesus Christ, or this revelation ministry of Jesus Christ, he first explains to us God's plan. In verses 1 and 2, he explains to us what the plan is. God has always had the plan of being in close fellowship with mankind. He wants man to know him. He created Adam and then Eve from Adam in the garden so that they, in their holy matrimony, could be one with each other and one with him. That there would be a relationship with the, from the creator with the creature. That we, as his creation and special creation mankind, would look to him, long for him, and live for him. And so he says in verse number one, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets from Adam to Abraham from Moses to John the Baptist all of the Old Testament prophets all of his faithful servants they explained everything they were told and they explained everything they knew about God but when Jesus came as God he could explain them that's what verse 2 is saying you wonder why he would tell us that the faithful servants of old the faithful prophets of old are there in verse 1, and the answer is because they served their purpose. 
but their purpose could not be accomplished in the way that Jesus could accomplish it. He's the living word. He's the creator. He was going to be the redeemer. He, when he came, could tell us everything that God wanted us to know. Boy, that puts an imperative on those gospels, then doesn't it? Listening to every word that Jesus said. Jesus was infinitely better than any of those men, no matter how righteous, right, or good they were. He alone could reveal the fullness of God, his plan and his provision, because he was God in the flesh. The second thing that we note under this is that the revelation was an expression of God's person. He didn't, wasn't just explaining God's plan. He was actually an expression of God's person. In verse number two, we pick up in the middle of that verse, the Bible says, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. The he here is Jesus Christ. God the Father appointed Jesus heir of all things. God the Father made the world by Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is our creator. Jesus Christ is the brightness of the Father's glory. Jesus Christ is the express image of his person. It is interesting to note as well, not only is there an inherited claim, by the way, he has an inheritance because he is an heir appointed to this creation, but we also find an inherent claim that Jesus is making. He's expressing God's personhood, himself in his fullness, not just in the sense that I am God and I am the heir. He is saying, I have an inherent claim. That means by default, I can claim this because I made this. I can claim this because I sustained this. I love the little phrase in verse number three. Look there with me in your Bible. It says, he is the express image of his person. Now, if you take out your phone, but don't do it. But if you took out your phone before, maybe you have it out and you have your Bible open on it. That's fine. When you opened your phone, if you did this morning and opened your Bible app as a former computer guy, I can tell you that what you pressed on on your screen was something we call an icon. When you pressed on that icon, the fullness of the program that is your Bible app or your Facebook app or your Instapot or whatever other app you open on your phone, when you press the icon, the fullness of the program opens to you. Do you know what word the express image, the word image in the original language is? It's the word icon. You mean God, 2,000 years ago, knew that we would still be using icons today? Well, they didn't use them like that back then. But that's essentially what Jesus Christ was. Can I see God? Well, no. Moses asked to see God in the Old Testament, and God said to him, without faith in Jesus Christ, you can only see the hinder part of me, because no man can see all of my glory. But we read right here that he was the brightness of his glory. That means he was the fullness of who God the Father was in human form. And as a human, he was the icon. He was the expression that we could access all of the fullness of the Godhead in him. It's a wonderful truth. That's, that's joy to our soul. That, friend, is revelation. We don't need to know anything else about God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, except for what we know about God the Son and what he's revealed to us. Right. That's what the writer is saying. Boy, if you want to talk about superiority... That's great. The other thing that I love about this is, is this. <clears throat> are there any space nerds in here? Go ahead. You raise your hand real high. I'm raising mine up. Some of you are looking at each other, maybe your boyfriends and girlfriends or your spouses at this point, and say, I don't want to make it. Real high. Come on. Who's my space nerd? 
Thank you. There's one in the back row. Bill's kind of half waving at me. All right, I wasn't sure which he was. All right, good. We're not auctioning anything. How, how many of you that are not space nerds have heard about this new satellite they shot up into space? The James Webb Telescope. Right, the Hubble wasn't good enough. Remember, they shot it up into space, and the Hubble, when they shot up in space, the lens was too thick, so they had to send astronauts up there back in the 80s and 90s, or I guess the 90s, and grind the glass so that they could get clear pictures of the universe. But when they sent this James Webb Telescope up there, they said, essentially, we are going to discover all of the origins of the universe. That was the state of the universe. We're going to find the origins of the universe. And I was reading an article about three or four weeks ago, and in that article, one of the people that is doing the research and the study, they're saying things like this now. We're just hoping that the satellite shows us a hint of all the dark matter that holds the universe together. And I thought, oh, okay. Right? I mean, I'm a nerd, and so I understand what they're saying. Some of you that are not nerds are like, ah, oh, please get past this point, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> All it's saying is, in science today, they cannot account for how the universe does not fly apart. There has to be extra gravity that holds all things together. So science, these really intelligent people who deny God, reject God, and hate God, have told us that the simplest explanation is dark matter. Can I make a suggestion? If you look in your Bible, we can find that dark matter. By the way, to the godless mind, Jesus Christ is always dark matter. They're dense to him, we might say. They cannot see him. They're blind and are afar off. The Bible tells us very simply how the universe is held together. Oh, you simpleton. You poor Neanderthal believing Christian, I can't believe you, they would say to us. And we would say to them, then explain dark matter. We can't yet. Well, I can. I'm smarter than you. <laughs> Upholding all things by the word of his power. Amen. Friends, that's quite a revelation right there. No, do we need to send a satellite into space to find it? Probably not, although I like seeing rockets launched into space, so that's pretty cool. But no, we're not going to find God through telescopic lenses, infrared cameras, or wavelengths. By the way, side note, free preaching. All of the redshift of the universe is all coming back to Earth. Does that mean we're the center of everything? It seems so right now. We are. That's free for another day. Here's the point. That which is beyond our world and beyond our understanding, God upholds by the power of his word. And his word will never fail. Amen. Christ's ministry was not merely about revelation, but letter B, it was also a ministry of redemption. In the middle of verse 3, we find that the revelation work of Jesus Christ gives way to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says there, when he had by himself, boy, that's wonderful, underline that specific phrase, by himself, Jesus does not need your help to save you. Jesus doesn't need anything from you to purge your sins. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on my right hand of the majesty on high. There's two things that we understand in this redemption here in verse 3. First, he purged our sins. Christ 
purge our sins by shedding his blood on Calvary. The Hebrew reader would have known this Mosaic law and the absolute nature of it very clearly. They would have understood the idea of the Passover lamb. They would have understood the idea of the hyssop and the blood on it sprinkling on the doorpost. They would have understood then with the high priest having the blood put on his finger and on his ear and on his toe as he entered into the Holy of Holies on that high day of atonement. They would have understood every part of every piece of this sacrifice that was needed. What was necessary under the law to have your sins purged for a day so that the high priest could enter into the presence of what we find is Jesus Christ by himself purged all of our sins. What a joy that is to know. He is the perfect Passover lamb. The act, by the way, in this statement, the use of the word, the verbiage that is used here in the original language shows an act that is both total and final. He purged our sins, but also in verse 3 we find he was placed upon his throne. Christ left his throne, as we sang even this morning in our hymns, in our time of worship there. He left his throne to become sin for us. Following his victorious resurrection, he ascended back into heaven, according to Acts 1 and verse 11. That ascension was not just from the earth physically, but it was to his rightful place on the right hand of majesty, we read in verse number 3. That ascension was... No longer as just the mere creator, but as the redeeming liberator of mankind. Whosoever will may come, the book of Revelation tells us. The opening sentence is not yet complete. I was taught as a kid years ago in English that you diagram and understand a sentence by understanding the whole sentence. This is a long one. If I had to diagram it, I probably would be in tears. You get verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. In the middle of verse 3 and into verse 4, we see a transition coming into verse 4 from his ministry to letter, or number 2 in your notes, his majesty. Jesus Christ, having won our redemption by shedding his blood and being victorious over the grave, we now live in him. He ascends on high and is seated. He sits down. His work is done. Nothing else needs to be done. He seats himself at the right hand of majesty. The majesty is God the Father himself. God in his three persons, but God in his fullness. He's seated back there in all of his glory. And in that seat, we read these words. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time... Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. In other words, at what point did the majesty on high, God the Father, ever say to an angelic being, You're my son, I've begotten you? And the answer is, zero. Never. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Has he ever said that to an angelic being? No. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten of the world, he said, And let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, and of the angels, he said, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he said. And that was the message to them. Hey, look, your ministering spirits, your flames of fire. But unto the Son, here's what God the Father says to God the Son. Thy throne, notice the next two words. Oh, say them out loud. God the Father just called Jesus Christ God. And any religion... Any faith, 
any person that says Jesus isn't God, be careful, beware, run far, run fast. They are liars. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, again, the majesty on high is the one speaking here. He's the one that the writer of Hebrews is recording the message to. The Spirit of God is moving the writer to record a message from God the Father to God the Son. And we get to hear it. It's like reading John 17, the prayer of Jesus back to his Father. We find here what the Father thinks of his Son. Verses 8 through 14, that's the conversation. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So we find in his majesty, I ask this first question. How majestic is Jesus to you? How glorious is he? How holy and just is he in your eyes? I would remind you that in today's world, Jesus Christ is ignored, he is cursed, and he's considered irrelevant. Here in the devil's playground, God and Jesus Christ have always been hated. Some in this world don't even know him, while others outright reject him. And so the majesty of God, then, is left to us believers to know and to live by. It is for us to glorify God and so that the world can see just how holy, how good, and how glorious he is. And so I asked him the question, how majestic is Jesus to you? I'm reminded of the satanic, sacrilegious song from the 90s where a woman singing about God riding a bus as a slob like one of us. And I think, God help her soul. Because she is blasphemous at every turn. And yet I wonder how many Christians live as if God and Jesus Christ is just my buddy. Look, you can't read that passage and think that Jesus is just your buddy going down to the bar with you. Right. You can't think that Jesus is just your pal right along in your heart watching that show that you're watching, going to that film, listening to that music, talking in that way. You cannot see this Jesus and live that way. How majestic is Jesus to you? Christians are the ones who are to display and demonstrate the majesty of Jesus Christ. We are his living body. Look at the modern church and ask yourself if the modern church is causing Christ to appear majestic in the eyes of the world. You walk into some, I've, I've had, uh, in the last month or two, I had a family come by the church. They visited. Uh, they just wanted to see what we were about. They knew Jeff and I from somewhere else. And they walked in and they said, man, how refreshing it is to come into a place and not see an entire drum set bar-like atmosphere with black walls, black paint, all of the setup and the, and the rigmarole that's going on here. And here's what they said. These people aren't even Christians. I didn't even tell them, hey, look, this is how we do it. We're holier than you. We didn't say that. We just brought them in. They wanted to come see our church. They came in, and the guy said to me, he said, you know, that's kind of refreshing. And I said, I know. That's all I said to him, I know. Why? And by the way, that family, I think, has been in about five or six different churches here in central Kentucky. And when the Christian lead soloist looks nothing different than the godless 
performer on stage at the Billboard Music Awards, you have to start to wonder how majestic of a picture are we casting of who Jesus is. It doesn't mean we need to be holier than that. That's not at all what I'm saying. If you come in here and flip-flop, shorts, and your open Hawaiian shirt, I'm glad you're here. That's all we care about. We're in church. But as a body and as individuals, our objective in this world is to demonstrate how Jesus is that much different than this world. Right. Not like it. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying here. Thou, son, are God. And you just start treating the name of Jesus and Jesus as God. By the way, if it's true in the churches, look at your own behavior. Do your attitudes and your actions speak of a Savior who is high and lifted up as Isaiah saw? By the way, Jesus is as majestic as his Father. All the glory of our mind that our mind conjures up about God the Father upon his throne and his long white flowing robe and his white hair and his white beard. By the way, those are all wrong views of it, but let's say that's what your view is. <laughs> A God in flesh. Why would Jesus be any different? Is there a triune God? What we find in this passage is the introduction to the Hebrew readers from this writer is this. You folks need to understand Jesus died for you. Yes, he came and lived amongst us. Yes, he was one of us. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. But Jesus is God. And the moment we forget his holiness, his status of high and lifted up, we are in trouble as a church. Right. We are in trouble as a people. The writer of Hebrews knew Christ's majesty, and we are shown the majesty letter A in this moment. You know the name that I love the most is Honey from my wife. Honey could do, Honey could do. But I think the second most revered name in my life is Son. Now Christ is married to the church. And we are his bride. He is our bridegroom. But the most excellent name a person to be given, especially if it's God giving it, is son. The relationship. Jesus has dozens of names throughout the Bible that we could explore and examine. And they are well worth your study, the names of God. But the one that guarantees his majesty and the matchlessness of his nature is that he is God the Son. That's the most excellent name that Jesus has, the Son. John Phillips says this in his commentary. The Lord Jesus has, more, has a more excellent name than the angelic beings. He is not merely mighty like Michael. He is almighty. He is not just a messenger like Gabriel. He is himself the Logos, the living word. He is not only a star as Lucifer was. He is the bright and morning star. He is the sun and the center of all things. Never believe someone who says Jesus was a good man and a human instrument. He is God in the flesh, the son of God. What does all this have to do then with Christ's superiority? Because the contrast that the writer gives is his superiority over the angelic beings. And the answer is everything. As ministering spirits, the angels were sent to attend to his birth. They were sent again to his resurrection outside the tomb. And in the coming day, they will attend his return to earth. They are his servants. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is God. Even if the Mormon church tries to tell you that. 
even if another faith degrades who Jesus is, he's not a prophet. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's God. Amen. The name of Jesus truly is above all names. Paul said this to the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him, Jesus, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. In other words, the Godhead is glorified when we recognize who Jesus is. The majesty in his name gives way to the majesty in his nature, by the way. In verses 6, 7, and 8, we find the angels worship the Son when he stepped off his throne and was born in Bethlehem. They will worship him when he comes to set up his earthly kingdom again. They worship Christ because they are his creation. They are creatures. And he is God the Son. Worship, in that instance, is right. If you ever want to know in the Bible if the manifestation and the wording sometimes in the translations that we have is a little dicey. We have to read very carefully. Here's how you know if it is an actual angelic being or if it's God as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. If the person falls down in worship and they're allowed to keep worshiping, that's God. He's there. No angelic being is ever allowed to receive worship. It's the only thing that Lucifer desired, and it's why he was cast out of heaven. The angels worship him for he is God. He is superior to them in his nature. The writer of Hebrews brings up the heart of the matter. The Son is to be worshipped as God is worshipped, for they have the very same essence, the very same nature. In verses 8 and 9, the Father acknowledges Christ's deity and purity. The deity of Christ is confirmed by the Father. He rules in righteousness, we read in verse 8. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter, by the way, this is God's scepter. This is his rod. This is how he rules, by his word. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. It's the standard of your kingdom. Let me ask just a practical question in our preaching this morning. Where does Christ rule today? Where does he rule today? I mean, he's seated on the throne on high, on the right hand of majesty, we just read. But his kingdom presently is a spiritual kingdom. If the scepter of his kingdom is this book and that scepter is righteousness, then we should be living by the rule of Almighty God. This book. Right. He's God in his nature. In verse 9, it's not the deity that we focus on, but it's the purity of Christ. It is confirmed by the fact that he hates iniquity and is anointed with priestly oil. The purity of Christ was gladness to him, and it is gladness to us as we walk with him in his word. Once the reader of Hebrews acknowledges Jesus as God in these first two points, they cannot possibly go back to the empty shadows of a dead religion. In other words, if you recognize his ministry and you recognize his majesty, what on earth would Moses give to you? His law gives you nothing but death. It only gives you a standard to which you cannot live up to. And so we find in our final point this morning, we are told of Christ's master. 
In his person, he had a ministry, he has majesty, but he also is the king. He's the master. He's in control. The passage in verses 10 and following is still in the context of God speaking to God, conveying a heavenly and divine message to each other. We find his masterful control is known first in letter A by his sovereignty. Verse 10, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. Man, I wish for you nerds, the three or four of you that are in here, I could spend a lot of time talking about that verse. We were told the universe started in a big bang, and it did. <gasps> Let there be light, and bang, there was light. Don't be afraid of their terms. Don't let them rob us of words. By the way, we're told by the really smart scientists that someday the universe will be in in a great contraction. Then it expanded, then it'll contract. And God seems to say, yeah, that's probably not far off. He will fold the heavens up like a vesture. Like, I will take my jacket off when I get home. In two messages this morning, I've sweated like a pig. I won't do it now. But when I get home, I will take my jacket off, and I will fold it up on a chair. It will be like me folding up my vesture. That's what that word means. God will fold up the heavens. I don't even know what that means. Well, you're just not smart enough. I know, I know. Neither are you, because you don't know what it means. <laughs> and that is the superiority of the person of Christ. He does know what it means. Amen. He knows exactly what all of these verses mean. Right. He knows why they are said and what they are said for. It speaks to his mastery. He is sovereign. He is in control. The king of a country is the absolute authority of that land. Jesus is the God of the universe. And Hebrews shows that the sovereign, his sovereignty first by his control in verses 10 and 11. This truth of sovereign control speaks to Christ's omniscience. That means he's all-knowing. And his omnipotence, that means he's all-powerful. Can I make a little aside here for just a moment? Whatever life has dealt you, whatever your experiences live, whatever your troubles are, you can only see today and yesterday and the days before. God can see every day into the future all the way into eternity. That's what omniscience means. When it says that he's going to fold up the vesture, when it says he's going to do this, when it says they're going to wax away, but he's not going to, it speaks to the fact that God's sovereignly in control of everything. Do you mean God did this to me? No, we might have sinned and done it to ourselves. It might be a trial or a testing, but whatever has happened in our life, God knows what today is, he knows what yesterday was, and he knows what tomorrow will be. He knows how he's going to end it all. That's his omniscience. Mm -hmm. His sovereignty is seen in his control, but at the end of verse 12, we see this also in his constancy. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. You know, the final stanza of Amazing Grace says this, when we've been there for a thousand We've no less days to see.
sing God's praise than when we first hear it. Can I tell you a secret? In the eternal mind and concept of God, 10,000 years is no different than 10 trillion years. You know, we used to not be able to conceive that number, and then our country got that much better. <laughs> 10,000 years is no different than 10 trillion years. And you will still be brightly shining as the sun, S-U-N, and as the sun, S-O-N. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He has been from everlasting, the psalmist said, and will be to everlasting. The doctrinal concept here is that of his eternality. It's one of his five non-communicable attributes, just like omniscience and omnipotence are. That make God far beyond us. It means God is in control. You can't trust him. Why don't you? God is not bothered by the sinfulness of mankind or of one generation, for he created man and will be in existence long after those sinful, rejecting parts of our fallen race are cast into the lake of fire and are remembered no more. He will still be God, and he will still be unchanged. It brings us finally to the mastery that he has by his state, his given status. In verses 13 and 14, we have a kingdom, a country, a nation, state. It always has a throne, and it always has a people that are governing. Jesus has his seat in heaven enshrined in verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Do you know who this verse is aimed at, by the way? In the early hours, somebody yelled out Jewish believers, because I taught you that Hebrew was written to the Jewish believers. And the answer is yes. But there's one particular being that this verse is particularly pointed at, and it gives you the hope that you can get victory over him any time he comes and attacks you. There is one being, one angelic being, that from his very creation, or at least a moment after his creation, began to say, I will be like the Most High God. I will ascend into the mountain of God. I will become my own God. And this verse says, from God to God, to which of the angels have I ever said, hey, here, sit on my footstool? And the answer is none. Christ's state is established because he's God. He's not worried about what Satan is doing on this earth. It makes him superior in every way. His seat is enshrined. It can't be lost. It can't be forfeited. The second we find verse 14, a hope, and hopefully our takeaway from this morning, his servants engaged. His state is that he has servants ministering. They are not all are they not all, excuse me, ministering spirits sent forth to minister. Notice who these angels minister for. Notice they minister by or from Jesus Christ. Right? They're there serving the one seated upon the throne at the right hand of majesty on high, the right hand of being of power. They are serving him. But notice who they are serving for. For them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's you and me this morning as we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. So, Pastor, you're going to pre preach this morning on the doctrine of angels, not in a minute and a half. Because here's what I can tell you. While some ministries and functions of the angels have been defined for us in the Word of God, 
We have no idea the extent of what this means. We don't know when, why, or how Christ will send out ministering spirits or to what end they're ministering. We just know that those servants are engaged by the sovereign because of his status of being seated upon that throne. They're doing God's work at God's request. Boy, there's a lesson for us. The race of men, who we're going to find out in chapter 2, are a little lower than the angels. We're, we're down, down here on the rungs. None of us are metaphysical, immaterial beings that pop in and pop out. Anybody done that here this morning? Some of you have popped in and popped out throughout the message, but that may be more mentally than physically. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, we know they minister and that we know we're to be ministering as well. In closing, Jesus Christ is superior. He's superior in his person to any other being. Why? He's God. Right. His ministry, his majesty, and his mastery give to us the basis of our faith. You cannot talk about his purpose, as we will next week, without knowing his person, as we've discovered this week. In Christ's person, we find the divine revealed to us. So the questions then this morning are, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your Savior? The ministering spirits of God minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's you and me, if we know Christ is our Savior. Do you remember that excellent name? What was the excellent name that made him majestic? Son. Son. Can I tell you a secret? When it says we shall be heirs of salvation, we are joint heirs with Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us in verse 14 that he gave us power to become the sons of God. What a truth. How rich is that? How wonderful to know that that is ours. Our religious efforts cannot make us God's sons, the writer has told us. But a personal relationship with Jesus Christ does. We are then heirs of God. Father, help us, I pray this morning.